0: We see you as you are, for your glory and your name's sake, Amen. Amen, church family. Would you take God's word and join me in Matthew chapter five this morning? Matthew chapter five, one verse together, verse twenty. Matthew chapter five, verse twenty. When you live on the front porch of the sun, like we do here in South Alabama, uh, it's just hard to stay cool, right? Air conditioners take a beating, so if you feel a little warm. This morning, um, our air conditioners are doing the very best that they can. You may want to pray for them. Alright, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, uh, this, this morning. You might recall the great Shema uh, of, of Israel is recorded in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. It says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord, your God, with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your might. As God's people there in Deuteronomy, they are about to make their way finally, after many, many, many years, about to finally make their way into the promised land. They will live in this land as God's chosen covenant people and what they learn at the beginning of Deuteronomy in the second giving of the law, what they learn about their relationship with God in that moment is that God's greatest desire for his people that he has saved for himself is that they would love him with all that they are. That they would love Him, not merely externally, but they would love Him internally from the heart, the very core of their being. God does not desire for His people only to do outward acts of righteousness without that first proceeding from a heart that is deeply and passionately in love with him. God desires that their love for him be a love that consumes them, all that they are, and that then drives all of their behavior. What God intends for his people is that any outward expression of their love for him must first proceed from a heart that he has first changed from a heart of stone to a heart of of flesh. And so for the people of God, their obedience to Him, their keeping of His law, what God is saying in that great Shema to them is that I want you to do those things by way of obedience out of flowing from a heart that is so deeply and passionately in love with and committed to me for who I am and what I have done for you. However, as you continue to read throughout the rest of the Old Testament, following the journey of the people of God, what we find very quickly is that in time, their love for God, it would wane. They would find other passions. They would find other pursuits. And as a result of that, their acts of righteousness would become purely an external display of self-righteousness completely devoid of hearts that were in love with the God who had called them out of Egypt into the promised land. And so then by the time you make your way to the prophets, turn to Isaiah with me for just a moment. Isaiah chapter 1. By the time that you get to the prophets, they are speaking to God's people. The very word and message of God that will bring stern and stiff rebuke upon God's people for the fact that their hearts are so far removed from God. Isaiah 1, look down to verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. And I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling of my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath, the calling of assemblies. I cannot endure iniquity and the solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feast, they've become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Reprove the ruthless. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Later in Isaiah chapter 29 and verse 13, God will say about this people, this people draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. You might also recall that years earlier, King David wrote in Psalm 51, verses 16 and 17, for you do not delight in sacrifices. Otherwise, I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite spirit hearts, oh God, you will not despise. And then you fast forward to the time of Jesus' earthly ministry as we see it unfolding here in the Gospel of Matthew. And as we look across the spectrum of God's people, what we find is that things have not gotten better in this area. In fact, if anything, it's gotten much worse. As Jesus begins His ministry, what dominates the religious landscape of Judaism and its leaders is not a righteousness proceeding from a heart that is so deeply in love with God, but it is a self-righteousness that cares more about their own glory and the development of their platform more than the glory of God. The scribes and the Pharisees had perverted the religious system of God's people by drawing all attention to themselves. And they had perverted the religious system by their own self-righteous, at least what they considered to be meticulous keeping of God's law. And so then, in the Sermon on the Mounts, Here at the beginning still, the beginning portions of this sermon, Jesus is going to begin to write what has been made wrong. He is going to untangle what the scribes' false teaching has twisted, and he is going to make straight what the Pharisees' hypocrisy has perverted. And so then, when you get to verse 20, verse 20 is going to be a bombshell in this sermon. It is going to be a bombshell that reverberates across the land, across the religious system, and it is going to shake the very core of these scribes and Pharisees. When in verse 20, Jesus says, For I say to you, that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Hey, hearers, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. At the very core of verse 20 is this call to righteousness. And so, as we think through this text together, I want us to kind of hone in on that word, righteousness. And I want us to see together three facets of righteousness as we study in verse 20. Three facets. Of righteousness. Number one, the first facet is this. I want us to see the definition of righteousness. The definition of righteousness. So there it sits right in the middle of verse 20. Your eyes are just sort of drawn to that word even as you're reading the text it's not the first time that this word has shown up in scripture and it most certainly will not be the last and as you see this word all throughout scripture there are typically two different ways in which we see this word used and depending on the context will help you to understand what's at the heart of the usage of the word righteousness one typical use that we find throughout scripture it it, it deals with our righteousness in a position sense if you will meaning it, it refers to the kind of righteousness that we need in order to be right with God in order to have our standing our position before God in order to have that change as we'll think a little bit more about that kind of righteousness at the end of the text that's one of kind of the typical ways that we see righteousness used however there's a second way that the word righteousness is typically used in Scripture. And it's more practical, if you will. The first instance being positional, this second instance being more practical. It, It has to do with our daily, our daily practical righteousness. Our daily living out of what we say we believe. And when Jesus is referencing your righteousness here in verse 20, this is sort of the idea that he's driving at. This daily, practical, uh, kind of marking the, the course of your days type of righteousness. And this is a righteousness that quite simply is right living according to God's Word and God's standard. As we think about what righteousness means in this context, we're talking about a, a way of living that conforms our hearts, our minds, and our actions to the standard of God's Word and how He has called us to live. We've been seeing even early in Matthew 5 and in this Sermon on the Mount that Jesus has a particular way in which he calls the disciples of his kingdom to live to act. And this is what he's driving at when he says your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Maybe a little more depth to to what we're thinking about here, maybe just four things to think about regarding this type of righteousness. Number one, it's from God. This type of righteousness can only come from God. Philippians chapter 3 verse 9, Paul's speaking about righteousness. It's through faith in Christ and it's the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith you cannot live out this righteousness. You cannot please God with your life and draw your life into conformity with his word unless God has first given you this righteousness. Secondly, it's not merely external. It derives from the inward changed heart. Jesus is not talking about, in verse 20, you got to do more things outwardly in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not what he's saying here. The righteousness of, of, of Scripture, biblical Christian righteousness, first derives from a heart that God has first changed. Thirdly, this righteousness is obedient to God's Word. And just again, we're being drawn into the reality that once you're saved, it's not just, hey, ticket's punched and I'm safe and secure and I can go and live my life however I want to go and live my life. When the Lord Jesus saves you, He claims you for Himself and you are now His. And the demands, the good and holy and righteous demands that He places on your life are to be carried and lived out on a daily basis basis and then fourthly this righteousness is a righteousness that glorifies god and not self it's glorifying to god psalm 115 verse 1 the uh, the cry of the psalmist is not unto us O lord not unto us but to your name give glory or Romans chapter 11, verse 36. Paul, after walking through the the glorious good news of the gospel, he ends in this doxology that says, For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. As we're thinking about what Jesus means by our righteousness, those are the kinds of things that we need to be thinking about. That's where our mind needs to be. Primarily, that this is something wrought in our hearts by God that changes us from the inside out and does not merely stop at the external doing of some good deeds. If we think that righteousness is merely just outwardly kind of come to church, do the right things, When I'm around Christian people, I just kind of do and say the right things, and that's about the extent of it, then we are in grave danger of distorting righteousness. And that's our second facet here as we're looking in verse 20. The second facet of righteousness is the distortion of righteousness. The distortion of righteousness. What does Jesus say in verse 20? Unless... Your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. And so right here before us in verse 20, Jesus clearly is thinking about two different displays of righteousness. The the righteousness that's displayed through the scribes and the Pharisees, and then this other righteousness that He calls His people to live out. He, He says in verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses the word surpasses it means to be over or above it means to be in abundance to excel or to be better than unless your righteousness outdoes goes further goes deeper excels the righteousness of the scribes and the pharisees this is such a shocking statement a bombshell in a lot of ways Because for the Jewish people, and most certainly for the scribes and the Pharisees, there is nobody in all of Israel that is more righteous than those two groups of people. And so when Jesus says in verse 20, your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, I assume that there are people in that congregation shaking their head, maybe throwing their hands up. How do we do that? There's nobody that keeps the law and does these outward deeds of righteousness more than the scribes and the Pharisees. These scribes had become the teachers of the law. They were those who regularly read and copied and taught the law of God. Nobody... Nobody spent more time in the law than the scribes. Day in and day out studying and copying and on the Sabbath day teaching and and training. And then the Pharisees, this religious group that had grown up there in Israel. If the scribes were the teachers of the law, then the Pharisees sort of claimed to fame is that they were the doers of the law. Uh, they, they loved, they loved, loved, love to show outwardly how much of God's law they could keep. In fact, they were so committed to the doing of God's law that they had sort of written their own extra biblical law code. Uh, they, they looked in God's law and thought, you know what? We kind of got all that whipped. Let's find some other stuff that we can be really good at doing. And so they had their own code of laws that they came up with. And it's in this code of laws where they said things to themselves and to the people of God. Hey, you can only walk so many steps on the Sabbath day because if you take one step too many, You've worked and therefore you've broken the Sabbath. I think maybe my favorite though, you ready? Is that on the Sabbath day you couldn't spit. Because if you spit, your spit hit the dirt and made mud. And therefore you were working on the Sabbath day and had broken the law of God. Again, nobody in all of Israel seems, looking on the outside, seems more righteous, holy, and devout than the scribes and the Pharisees. Yet, Jesus says in verse 20, your righteousness has to surpass that. It has to go farther, deeper. Because the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees was only external. It was only outward. It was only for show. It did not flow from a changed heart. It was not given by God. Their righteousness did not really obey God's Word. And their righteousness was self-glorifying, not God-glorifying. It was a hypocritical self-righteousness that Jesus later in Matthew 23 will give scathing rebuke for. It was a hypocritical. Self-righteousness that made themselves and those they taught twice the sons of hell. Nowhere is this hypocritical self-righteousness seen more clearly than in Luke chapter 18. Turn there with me for a moment. Luke chapter 18. Jesus tells a parable to draw out in very, very clear ways the heart of the scribes and the Pharisees. Luke chapter 18, verse 9. He told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you. I thank you that I am not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get Scribes and the Pharisees believed that they were doing God's will. They believed that they were the most righteous, but in all actuality, they were the ones farthest away from God. Their righteousness was not really righteous. For all of their meticulous detail and attention to the keeping of the very letter of the law, they missed the heart of the law, and it produced in them a self-righteousness proceeding from spiritually dead hearts. Their righteousness was only external. It only received as a reward the applause of man. And that's about as far as it went. John Stott said, says this, the Christian righteousness is greater than Pharisaic righteousness because it is deeper being a righteousness of the heart. Beloved, it's worth asking ourselves in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, as we consider the call to righteousness, as we consider the demands that the Lord has placed upon His people, it's worth asking ourselves, am I daily living out and daily fighting to live out A righteousness given to me by God derived from a changed heart that seeks not my own glory but the glory of God and that seeks out of a great thankfulness for what God has done for me in Christ to live out this glorious Gospel so that others may see Your good works and glorify Your Father who is in heaven. Christian, would you ask yourself this morning, am I fighting for holiness in my life? Am I fighting to put sin to death in me? Am I fleeing from sin and running to and pursuing Christ? if you claim the name of Christ, if you would say about yourself that I have been washed in the blood of the Lamb and forgiven and cleansed by the sovereign grace and mercy of God, then what that means is that there will be particular change that takes place in our lives and there will be a righteousness derived from God. We will work, we will fight For holiness, we will fight to not live out a distorted view of self-righteousness, but to live out holiness and godliness in our lives. Are you here this morning thinking that by your good works, that by your careful attention to your moral code, that by giving to the Lord That by singing some songs, that by being better than your neighbor, that those are the kinds of things in which God will be pleased? Is that you this morning? Listen, I'm I'm telling you, in and of yourself, you cannot begin to produce a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. Listen, if, if it were just merely the doing of the law that made you right with God, scribes and Pharisees have a front row seat in the kingdom of heaven. But they had distorted righteousness. If you're here this morning, seeking to do it on your own, according to your best effort, you're also distorting righteousness. And now thirdly, I want us to see that there is a demand of this kind of righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. It's a definition, a distortion, and now finally at the end of verse 20, there's a particular demand of righteousness. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The language gets really, really clear, does it not? And the demand for a better righteousness begins to come into view. You will not enter the kingdom of heaven unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. You want to be a disciple of Jesus? You need a better righteousness. You want to enter God's kingdom? You need a better righteousness righteousness. But then there's an obvious question that stands in the way. It was the obvious question, I think, for Jesus' hearers in verse 20, and it's still the obvious question today. If no one is seemingly more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees, who can then actually be a part of this kingdom? If nobody is more outwardly righteous than the scribes and Pharisees, then who gets in? What hope, what possible hope do I have to enter the kingdom of heaven? If there is such a demand for a better righteousness, then what can I generate within me to be so righteous? There is a demand here in church, the praise of God's glory, and to the praise of God's grace, what God demands, God also provides. What he demands of us, he also provides for us. Because church, there is no righteousness that we have that we can generate There are not enough boxes that you can check, not enough hours that you can serve, not enough money that you can give that will make you righteous enough to enter the kingdom of heaven. So then, praise God that He has given us a righteousness that is not our own. He has clothed us in a righteousness that is so much better than what we could produce. And He has given us all of that righteousness. Enough to gain us entry into the kingdom of heaven by the righteousness of His beloved Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, you must be clothed in Christ's obedient, law-keeping righteousness if you would enter the kingdom of heaven. Christian, remind yourself this morning. If you are In Christ, if your hope and your eternity is secure, remind yourself of how you got to that place, dear saint. You got to that place not because you generated it within yourself and you found the right combination to be pleasing to God, but you got to that place because of God's grace and mercy to you in Christ. Do not let that reality grow dull in your ears, in your mind, or in your hearts. Do not lose sight of how big and glorious and beautiful and necessary the gospel really is. Because without it, we are outside the camp. We are outside of the kingdom of heaven toiling away, trying to get in, but there is not enough righteousness apart from Christ. Only through Christ and His perfect righteousness that we might have access into God's kingdom. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, you're not dressed in His righteousness alone. Be warned, dear friend. Be warned by the words of Christ in verse 20. You've got to have a better righteousness. Listen, maybe you had a great week. Maybe, maybe you did a lot of things well. Please don't rely on that. Please don't rely on your best effort because it is not enough. You must come Christ you must turn from your sin, you must turn to Christ. You must acknowledge your spiritual bankruptcy, even on your very best day, and that all that you need is in Christ. And so hear the word of God, saints, sinners alike. First Corinthians one, verses 30 and 31, "But by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. Who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness, sanctification, and redemption that just as it is written, let him who boast boast in the Lord. In, in whom is your boast this morning? In whom is your hope and your confidence this morning? Is it in yourself? Or is it in Christ? Christ became righteousness for us. To us us 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 he made him God made Christ who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf watch it that we might become the righteousness of God in him how do you become righteous in Christ Christ 2nd or Philippians chapter 3 verse 9 Paul's great desire was that He be found in Christ. Not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Praise God, church, that what God demands, He provides. He demands a perfect righteousness and so He provides that to us through the righteousness of His Son. When the cares of your heart are many, let that consolation cheer your soul. When the days are dark and hard and there is affliction, let this be the ballast in that storm. That in Christ, you have entrance and already are a part of the kingdom of heaven. So, church respond to this glorious gospel by living out the good news, the Gospel, living it out by obedient, God-glorifying righteousness. Not just for external applause. Not for external show. But to make much of God. To advance His kingdom. To show forth the excellencies of Christ. And once more, if you're here this morning, you must come to Christ if you do not know Him. That's your response. That's what you must do. You must call out to Christ. Believing that His righteousness alone can save you. And believing that all who call upon the Lord, they will be saved. Will you come to Him today? Let's pray together this morning. Father, is in the scriptures before us, Christ is about to get to the very heart of your word, the very heart of your law. God, he calls all people to a greater righteousness, reminding that. There must be something better than our own personal self-righteousness if we would enter the kingdom of heaven. That we must be more righteous even than the best law keeper on the planet. And that in that statement, Christ is screaming out to all who hear Him, I am that righteousness. As Paul would write in 1 Corinthians 1, He is the righteousness come from heaven to make His people righteous. So God, I I, I pray for Your people. I, I pray for the church this morning. God, for those that maybe they're just struggling right now. They're, they're just in a particular season of struggle in their walk with you, O Lord. They, they find it, if they're just honest in their hearts, they find it easy right now to, to give in to some particular temptations. God, remind them. Remind them that you you do call your people to holiness. God, you call your people to righteousness. And God, I I pray that the catalyst that leads them to repentance and, and, and living out this righteousness in a practical way, God, that the catalyst for them would be a reminder that the righteousness that has gained them entry into the kingdom of heaven comes to them by your kind and merciful hand in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, that they would remember what Jesus has done for them. They would remember his death on the cross. They would remember that it is through his blood that they are forgiven and cleansed and set free from bondage to sin. God, that they would begin to pursue you passionately once again with all their heart, soul, and might. Father, I pray for the one in the room. God, that by their very best efforts, they're trying to gain entry into the kingdom. God, show them the demand for a better righteousness and God, show them that what you demand, only you can provide and you have done that, oh God, in Christ. And that they would come to Him. So Father, however you call us to respond, God, I pray that we would do that. God, so that you might be glorified. So that we might be holy. God, so that people would be saved. God, that your name would be made much of. We love you and we thank you. We ask and we pray it all in Christ's great name. Amen. Amen. We're gonna...